Turkey Call All Access, the official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation. Brought to you by Nomad. Turkey Call All Access is a digital campfire where we discuss topics of the day, conservation efforts, tips and techniques to better your experience of field, and our members' stories. Welcome back to another episode of the Turkey Call All Access podcast. On this episode, we're talking about the connection between wild turkeys, white oak, and bourbon. We'll jump right into that in 90 seconds. Bass Pro Shops and the National Wild Turkey Federation stand together to help make a difference for the wildlife and scenic lands that enrich our hunting lifestyle. Since 1973, we have positively impacted more than 22 million acres and invested more than $9 million into wild turkey research, an effort supported by Bass Pro Shops. The restoration of the wild turkey is one of America's greatest conservation success stories, but the work is far from over. Through the continued contributions of partners like Johnny Morris and Bass Pro Shops, the NWTF mission is a movement that is delivering the right conservation work at the right place and at the right scale. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring, we head to the woods chasing turkeys, and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us, and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend, if you're a spring turkey hunter, spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Um, Brandon, where, where are you at, man? Where are you out of Michigan? Um, I don't know. Hour and 15 minutes Southeast of Ryan, probably. So I learned, I learned, I learned some, some Michigan, Michigander terms this year. So (laughs) youper, youper, that was one that I learned. Oh yeah. And then trolls, people that live just below the (laughs) bridge. You're all tr- okay, so is that everyone below Michigan the bridge? Pretty much, yeah. Yep. Okay, I thought it was just people that were like just kind of close to the bridge. So no, anybody under the bridge. So if you're if you're in the UP, well then you're a youper. But anybody below the bridge, we're all trolls. Gotcha. Clever, clever, clever names. So now, Heather, where where what part of Michigan are you in? Uh, I'm at a Lake Odessa, which is pretty much smack dab between Grand Rapids and Lansing. Okay. So all Michigan state fans, is that what I'm hearing? Or is this uh eclectic Brian? I know you oh, are chime in red wings. Red, okay. There we go. I'm, I'm, I'm all very good. Don't matter to me either way. I could care less. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now tell that me is the most important sport already. So maybe I'll say Michigan since you're for state. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I'm uh yeah, I'm I'm an Ohio State fan, so I am oh. definitely the <laughs> that was fighting terms. 
those are fighting terms. Interviews over, everyone just dives out. So, um, no, you guys, you guys have had two good, two good years. So I'll, uh, I don't know. I do like deer hunting in Michigan. I haven't done any turkey hunting in Michigan, Ryan Boyer. We need to fix that next spring. Let's do it. Yeah, very good. Now, Heather, tell me about your uh, your your bourbon group that you have, Bourbon Hunters. Yes. So Southwest Michigan Bourbon Hunters, uh, we're based out of like the Kalamazoo area. That's where it started. Uh, Nick, who's going to be joining us in a little bit, he's the one that started the group. And over the last few years, I think we've only been going about three years, maybe a little bit more now. Uh, we've we've grown to about, well, 4,200 members. And that kind of just started to to take off. I mean, bourbon's one of those things that pretty much anybody who has enjoyed whiskey, uh, you're all of a sudden got best friends. So when you can, when you can talk about bourbon, when you can talk about whiskey, when you can talk about uh, different American heritage that all ties in with that, then you've got a bunch of people who would do anything for you, who are just best friends, who just get together and have fun and who want to talk about bourbon, want to talk about whiskey and, and uh, try new things and try what's out there and and learn stuff and so that's kind of what our group is all about is just kind of taking newbies under our wing uh helping them to learn what they want to learn about uh, bourbon itself about whiskey itself and uh having it be kind of like a safe place to where you can come in you can ask questions and nobody says anything about the fact that if you have zero experience there's a, a huge amount of people who are wanting to share their information, share their uh, their stories. Uh, if you're going to ask them about, you know, show me your your bar, then everybody wants to send a picture and go, hey, you can do this. And so it's a very inclusive group. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, people in there that just are really excited about sharing bourbon and providing a, an atmosphere and an opportunity for people to be able to do that in a way that just kind of builds community. Yeah. So I, I'll ask, I'll ask a dumb question. I am not, I like a good bourbon. I like a good whiskey. Uh, I'll be honest, but I don't really know the difference between the two. And I know like, that's probably <laughs> just as dumb of a statement as you can, as you can say. So what, what is the difference not between I actually, I actually asked Alexa, today what the difference was so i know the answer but i just i know there are other people out there like ah, i have no idea what the difference is between the two what 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 is the difference well okay so bourbon is is whiskey so all bourbon is whiskey however not all whiskey can be bourbon uh, in order to be able to be bourbon there are some very specific criteria that whiskey has to meet in order to be able to qualify for that first one being uh, has to be produced in the United States. Then there's other items like having to be aged in a new white oak tarred barrel. It has to uh, be barreled at a specific proof. It can't be higher than a specific proof. It has to be aged for a minimum of two years. And there's a there's a couple other criteria there in there that is slipping my mind at the moment. But for the most part, it's 
it's actually regulated. And uh, so in order to be able to label itself bourbon, it has several different things that it has to do in order to be able to reach those criteria. And then it can be labeled bourbon. And from there, uh, they can finish it in other casks, but it has to start with that process. So if it's aged in something other than a white, a, a new white oak charred barrel, it's a whiskey kind of thing. Um, if it's if it meets the criteria, then they can do other things after it meets that criteria. Excellent. So I do I do want to dive into kind of you know, the the history of within like the American identity when you talk about bourbon and moonshining and whiskey and hunting. We'll we'll dive into that. Um, so so Heather, let's uh, kind of back up here. I found out that your dad, what was your dad's name? What was your dad's sure? name? Yep. Was a retired NWTFRD regional director. Oh. So you've grown up around turkey hunting. You've grown up around this organization your entire life. Oh, yeah. For the most part. I mean, uh, even before he had started working for the NWTF, I was about 16 years old when he did. Um I mean, we would still, he was a part of the NWTF. We would go to banquets. That was just something that we did. I mean, he was a sportsman from, you know, his teen years. And so he's been turkey hunting, uh, deer hunting. That's That was part of everything that he did. So all the jobs leading up to the NWTF all had roots into the the sporting goods, whether it was selling, you know, merchandise, uh, working at a store selling merchandise or for companies that sold merchandise to stores that sold mer- sold merchandise. And the NWTF was like a, a bit of a lifelong dream for him. So he ended up being uh, the, the regional director for the state of Michigan for 20, I think 23 years. Uh, then he became the R3 uh, coordinator. Thank you. Uh, and he did that for about three years. So I think it was 26 years altogether that he was part of the NWTF. But he took the state of Michigan from uh, uh, the amount of chapters were in the teens to uh, well over 100 chapters within, I don't know, like a matter of like six or seven years. I mean, he just really uh, put his whole heart into it. And so uh, it was, it was a lot of fun because whenever we had the opportunity, we would be at a chapter banquet. We would be, you know, I was always selling, you know, hundred dollar raffle ticket packets and uh, going around helping that carrying the, the artwork, around or the different things during the auctions and so it was just one of those things we came with him we would help set up we would be a part of it you know you get to know the the different chapter presidents you get to know the different uh, people that are involved who you know this is a passion for them and you know I I have a, a lot of uncles and aunts in the NWTF that you know I just I love and adore and it's, you know, they're, they're just a part of me and having 
an opportunity to work with the NWTF in my own way has been really an exciting idea and, and venture for me. Yeah, excellent. Brandon Nutt, you, you are an RD in the state of Michigan. Are you a troll or a youper? Which one are you? <laughs> I'm a troll. A troll. Okay. So so talk talk about kind of, you know, just get, give us a snapshot of where you know the grassroots uh, organization is for the NWTF in the state of Michigan. You're the guy out on the front lines, man, every day. Talk talk about uh, membership involvement and, and, and how the chapters yeah. are moving right now. Um. Well, to that topic, I can fill a lot in in the last year, but obviously I started last November. So speaking back before that, besides looking at the number, the numbers, um, I don't have much to go off of on that, but um, we're up. I started a new chapter in my hometown, Nirvana, little cow town. There's no stoplight at all. It was the first new chapter in over a decade. Um, like, like she was saying, you know, Steve Sharp started a lot of them, but I feel like probably with COVID too. Um, I think the whole country kind of hit a point where there wasn't much growth as far as new chapters. So I started that. We got a new one in Holland. Um, and then me and Aaron are working on one together. So there should be three in the state this year. So number of chapters is increasing. We've added in a lot of volunteers to our chapters and, you know, events are higher. And because of that, memberships are higher calendar sales there's a lot of other factors that you know can draw those memberships in out like that so i think chapters are up volunteers are up um memberships are definitely up and i know money's up as well um so i think things are looking good and then from the conservation aspect you know you can talk to ryan about it but that's directly leading into into that so on all fronts i think michigan's at a strong point now. And I, I feel as if we got a lot of momentum. We got a great team right now. Um, we all get along great. So I think there's a lot of good things ahead. Very good. Now, Ryan Boyer, regional biologist for, for, for the national Turkey Federation, Ryan, this podcast, I feel like there's, there's two groups of people that that could listen to this and, and learn something. There are people that are bourbon drinkers and there are people that are Turkey hunters and then obviously you're going to have a lot of turkey hunters, bourbon hunters that like to, or, you know, bourbon drinkers that, that like to do both. Um, so what, when, when you called me and said, Hey man, this is check this out. Listen to this. I'm like, this is amazing. I love this idea of the story. So, so we're going to kind of tell two stories here. And so let's, let's start with um, just high level, what the white Oak initiative is, how long it's been around and and what the national wild turkey federation, uh, what our involvement and support is. Uh, for that initiative. Yeah. Uh, so there's a little bit to unpack there in terms of our involvement. And the White Oak Initiative is essentially a, a coalition of universities, uh, industry folks within the bourbon industry, uh, folks within the, the stave industry that are um, more closely tied to the the timber aspect, commercial aspect of it, uh, coalition, forest industry folks, uh, state agencies as well. A, a lot of uh, uh, the the impetus, the idea behind the development of this coalition, the White Oak Initiative, was that um, we're recognizing that we're, we're losing white oak across the landscape, a lot of our upland folks. And a lot of these changes are happening for a variety of reasons, but uh, primarily oaks require some form of disturbance on the landscape in order to help open up the canopy, get them the sunlight that they need uh, to promote regeneration and growth. And so 
as we've we've expanded, we've changed the land use and we've suppressed fire in many cases. We're we're losing the regeneration of some of these oaks and our forest types are transitioning. And so um, with that, there's there's a pretty um, high level of concern amongst conservation organizations like the National Wild Turkey Federation, university researchers, state agencies, and, and um, the bourbon industry as well. Uh, the importance of, of white oak from a wildlife standpoint, it's one of the most ecologically important species in North America. There's over 550 different species of butterflies that rely on white oaks, over 150 different vertebrate species. Uh, the mass production from white oak alone is incredibly important for a number of wildlife. So, um, you know, the idea or the, the importance for why we're a supporter and we're part of this larger coalition under the White Oak Initiative makes perfect sense from the wild turkey standpoint. Uh, you know, you can... and. There's a number of, of wildlife related studies specific to wild turkeys and the importance of mast and what it means for their winter survival and entering the reproductive season in better shape. Um, but, you know, you can you can look at that for a number of wildlife species. But uh, beyond that, there's a there's a really cool connection here and an opportunity to connect conservation and active forest management for healthier forests, healthier ecosystems to uh, the, the industry tied to this from the commercial aspect and specifically to the bourbon industry. So um, Heather was the one that had reached out and approached me about the potential to collaborate and look to see if there was ways that we may be able to work together to generate revenue to support conservation work, ultimately helping support conservation for more white oaks um, that ties in with this industry and help communicate um, and improve that that messaging on on both of our fronts here. So, uh, yeah, the, the fit and the importance of it and the need um, are at a really high level. And there's a cool opportunity for collaboration here, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He Heather, Nick, let's let's talk about the and I, and I mentioned it briefly and Heather you did too kind of the making bourbon making whiskey is ingrained in the culture of America from I mean from like the first time someone from Europe set foot or Spain you know our Europe set foot on this continent someone started making alcohol on the shores of this country and it continued it really ramped up um so so talk about like just give us like a real brief rundown for for the turkey hunters kind of like the 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 outlaw history of of whiskey and and bourbon making and and just really like the evolution of that of that of that industry I can try and take that one yeah um, and so whiskey really started if you go back and do if anybody's been on a tour at the distilleries or anything like that um the these farmers way back in the day they would grow their corn, but they did not have sufficient technology to store it as grain, right? So that's where they started uh, distilling it, turning it into alcohol and whiskey because they could store that on the shelves and then sell it to somebody later so that they didn't, their corn didn't just go bad or rot. But that gave them some longevity to the crops that they were making. Uh, after that, it, it really came into more focus when, you know, it gained popularity. And then uh, once it really started picking up, then the government cut, right? And they wanted some taxes on it. And that's really when things took a turn as far as whiskey in the U.S. So then we had you know, a lot more rules, regulations. Uh, we have the three-tier system now where a distillery has to sell the product to a distributor so that it all is all taxed 
and accounted for, and then it goes to your stores. There's a lot on the legality side. Um, and, and a lot of people didn't like that. Right. And so that's where you get into kind of the moonshiners. They didn't want to give away the money to the government. Right. So they, they made it out behind the shed or in the woods and started selling it on the side to get around those taxes. Just good old, uh, Amer um, good old American ingenuity right there. Right. <laughs> exactly. And then, then you get into, you know, much more recently, um, bourbon has been always been around uh but it's really been picking up again in popularity in the last let's say 10 years uh as a as a country the clear liquor sales are are decreasing and the things like your whiskey and bourbon are really coming back in popularity across the entire US that's good to good to hear, Heather. What what impacts did the you know the the stave is and that's what the bourbon is in right is a stave, which is made from a white oak barrel or from white oak lumber. What kind of impacts did did that industry have early on with white oaks? Was it just like a you know a, a gold rush I guess for for white oak trees? Was that was it just open season on those or has it always been pretty? pretty regulated just because it's so important to the bourbon industry uh well you know nick might be a little bit better to answer that question too just for the fact that i mean i i've got a lot of really great you know fun stories about historical things that happen throughout you know that that's related to whiskey uh, but when it comes to some of the the logistics of it, he's probably the better person to ask. Well, Nick, answer that question, then we'll dive into some fun bourbon stories. <laughs> All right. Well, I, sh I should have prefaced my last answer with you. Know, I'm not a historian either, so you can take what I say with a grain of salt. But uh, as we were talking about earlier, uh, bourbon was one of the first products in the U.S. that had a law made to define what it is right so so bourbon has to be 51 percent corn and it has to go into a brand new white oak charred barrel otherwise it can't be called bourbon legally that is the definition along with some other things so if we want to have bourbon to sell this, the distilleries they have to put it in a new white oak barrel and to do that, you have to have, you know, a white oak supply. Um, up till now, I haven't ever heard of any issues with a white oak supply, but the, the demand that we are seeing now and the amount of a distillate going into barrels in Kentucky alone is at a, an all-time high. Uh, they just passed a milestone where there's more barrels of whiskey in Kentucky than people. So they, they are laying down more and more product than ever. So they're obviously using these white oak in the barrels faster than they ever have before. It's a staggering statistic. More barrels of bourbon than people in the state of Kentucky. That's 
goodness. So, so Heather, give us, give us some of those good, give us some of those good stories. I mean, you know, the, I feel like, I feel like hunters and anglers, you know, there's that joke, like, uh, you know, liar's corner or whatever it may be. And there's, there's all of these, you know, just funny characters and, and, and stories within the hunting industry or, you know, the hunting circles and people have hunt camp stories. And there's gotta be, you know, some, some fun anecdotes about bourbon that doesn't involve, you know, crazy times when you're in college. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, to piggyback just a little bit off of Nick there, a part of how I got introduced to it is there has been this boom with artisan distilleries. Uh, It started kind of like Michigan uh, has a huge amount of breweries that are artisan breweries that are that are creating some really great unique uh, beers and things like that. And then as bourbon started to really kind of take off uh, to where it became this new hip thing, uh, that's it's no longer your granddad's drink, but you've got this younger generation who's all of a sudden realizing um, that there's some really great spirits being made by these craft distillers. And then all of a sudden they're realizing, oh, like all of these distilleries who um, have these deep roots in American history have been producing some amazing stuff for hundreds of years. And so um, my husband and I kind of started on that train to where we just really enjoyed going to distilleries and, you know, and kind of meeting the people behind it and learning the history of it as we did all of these different tours and trying different uh, different whiskeys, different bourbons, uh, different expressions of those whiskeys. And uh, from that, uh, in a little over a year, I had amassed about 160 bottles of whiskey. <laughs> and, um, and part of it just comes from the love of how it actually affected American history when it when it came to the development of our country, uh, because um, the the laws that were enacted uh, when it comes to legislation having to regulate uh, bourbon and uh, uh, part of that comes from the Bottled and Bond Act, which. Uh, for a while there, when whiskey and when bourbon all of a sudden became this new hot thing back in the 1800s, (laughs) um, there were these moonshiners who would also kind of try to capitalize on it, and they would take really uh, not so great dissolates and either mix tobacco juice in it to make it have that that beautiful golden color that you get from the aged barrels. Uh, They would put uh, sometimes shoe polish or different things in it like that. And people were getting sick. People were going like that, that term, you know, going blind. Uh, That would actually happen because, you know, there's a certain part of the distilling process in which the first part is not so good. The middle part is the best that you want and the tail is not good, you know? And so having different parts of the distillate um, 
would would make you sick. It would be bad for you. And so uh, in order to try to provide a product that people could rely on, they created the Bottle and Bond Act to where they, if they saw something on the shelf and it said Bottle and Bond, they knew that it was safe. So different distilleries had to meet specific requirements um, and it was it was federally regulated when it came to how it was produced within the distillery, the actual warehouses in which they were stored. Uh, there were things like that, that those distilleries had to meet those requirements in order to be able to put the label bottle and bond on in which people would be able to grab it and go, OK, I can trust this product. So. Um, so that was you know, one of those things that kind of shaped history when it came to uh, American history. And then um, like one of my favorite stories is how um, bourbon production is directly related to how the Kentucky Derbies got started. And so um, uh, back, back when, uh, things were just starting to to gear up for for bourbon. Uh, they kind of down in down in Louisiana and things like that. They were very fond because you've got this big French group that really like their wines that are aged in barrels, and so uh, so you know there were distillers that were like, well, okay, so. I mean, if they like it so much, let's try it. And it became a really big market to where they would have to get these barrels down to Louisiana. So they would use the Mississippi River. They'd have them on barges and they would take them down the river. And it was a dangerous route. I mean, people knew what they were taking down there. And when they get down there, they get it sold. And so you have all of these guys who... Uh, have a large amount of money from selling these barrels that had to get back to Kentucky. And so uh, the best way to do that was to find the fastest horse you could find. So that way you can ride back to Kentucky as fast as you can. And uh, racing back then was really big in Kentucky, except for it was dogs. And then they found themselves with a large quantity of very fast horses, you know, to where all of these guys are trying to make their way back uh, safely, uh, not getting, you know, sat upon by bandits or whatever. And uh, so they would, they'd be riding those fast horses up. They've got a huge amount of fast horses now in Kentucky. So, hey, we love racing. Why don't we race horses? And so that's kind of where the love of, you know, like how that all got started and it has its roots in bourbon. So mm. that's probably one of my favorite stories. That is, that is fascinating. Ryan Boyer, we can thank bootlegging, moonshine and bourbon, what delivery, whatever you want to call it for NASCAR and horse racing, right? I mean, that's look at look at that. So, Ryan, you 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 had mentioned, um, yeah, me too, man. I'm into it. So let's let's talk. So let's talk about like just really how important the white oak is. You mentioned mast production, and and how I like here in Ohio. I know uh, the DNR did a survey, 
And I think on this one little area that they, you know, that they surveyed, there were 43 different animals that were eating acorns that were produced by white oaks. I mean, that's a, that's crazy. That's like the, all, everything like, like talk about just how important like acorn production is to sustaining wildlife in, in this country. Oh, ex- extremely significant um, in terms and especially from, from a white oak perspective, the acorns from a white oak are, are much lower in tannins than they are from red oak species. Uh, so it makes them more palatable and more desirable uh, for a number of wildlife species. But um, there's, like I said, there there have been several uh, research studies that have looked at that in terms of the importance of oaks and mass production and what that means to the, the annual cycle of, you know, a number of game species, for instance, um, you know, you could look at recruitment and, and, and fawn rates for white-tailed deer in terms of uh, their reproductive success increases following years of high mass production. Uh, the home range size for uh, American black bears, for instance, has been shown to decrease significantly in years of, of high mass production. Uh, for, for wild turkeys specifically, um, it when there's a lot of hard mast on uh, on the landscape and available to them through through acorn production, uh, their home range size uh, decreases pretty significantly, and then thereafter winter survival increases and and uh, the health that they enter into the, the following year's reproductive season goes up tremendously. So yeah, there's uh, there's over 557 different species of butterflies that rely on the the bark of of oak species to meet some of their their life cycle needs. Uh, you know a number of fungus and invertebrates and the importance of their root systems uh, for a number of species are incredibly important. So yeah, white oaks uh, and oak species in general are um, in- incredibly important for a number of game and non-game species. So it's, uh, it's, it's a focus of ours and it, it really should be a focus of many others too. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. Bass Pro Shops and the National Wild Turkey Federation stand together to help make a difference for the wildlife and scenic lands that enrich our hunting lifestyle. Since 1973, we have positively impacted more than 22 million acres and invested more than $9 million into wild turkey research, an effort supported by Bass Pro Shops. The restoration of the wild turkey is one of America's greatest conservation success stories, but the work is far from over. Through the continued contributions of partners like Johnny Morris and Bass Pro Shops, the NWTF mission is a movement that is delivering the right conservation work at the right place and at the right scale. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Oak, oak savannas 
explain that term. What is an oak savanna? Yeah. So an oak savanna is essentially uh, a, a transition from uh, a fully mature closed canopy oak forest and an entirely open grassland. So uh, you would you would see oak savannas historically prior to European settlement uh, where where there was changes in precipitation and rainfall um, and, and soil types moving from an open prairie grassland and starting to slowly transition into more forested areas. So um, you think about a, you walk into a forest and you look up and you can't see any sunlight. Um, in an elk savanna, you would see roughly, you know, um, 50 to 70 percent would be open and available to sunlight. So oak savannas are uh, a really unique ecosystem type. There's only about 0.01 percent of the eco oak ecosystems, uh, the oak savannas and barrens that are on the landscape that were here prior to European settlement. So it's one of the most highly imperiled, imperiled ecosystem types. Um, but they're they're fire dependent. So again, to help support healthy oaks within these savannas and help promote uh, the grasses and wildflowers in the understory, uh, these oak savanna ecosystems need, need wildfire, they need periodic disturbance. And so uh, along with our oak forests, oak woodlands and oak savannas, we've seen them decline over time uh, based on the lack of disturbance we've been able to put on the landscape. Excellent. Now, what was the, what was the reasoning behind starting the white oak initiative and anyone can answer that whoever wants to answer that can answer that one why was why was the white oak initiative created the the primary concern was that we're, we're not seeing oak regenerating based on you know the the demand uh as from from an economic as well as an ecological standpoint so we uh you know nick alluded to it earlier here, you know, a lot of folks really just weren't aware, uh, you know, based on current availability and the number at least 80 years old or older, uh, which would meet the criteria in terms of, of harvest um, in many cases. We, we have plenty of those right now. But what we're not seeing in, in the understory are the seedlings and the saplings following up these, these white oaks to help offset what we're going to lose when, when some of those die off due to, to natural succession, old age, disease, uh, insects, infestations, things like that, or through, through periodic harvest. So, um, you know, the, the problem is with the lack of disturbance and a lack of fire, for instance, we, it doesn't suit oaks well, not having that, that sunlight being exposed to the forest floor. But what it does suit are uh, species like sassafras, red maple, um, your other maple species, basswood, things that have a lot lower wildlife value and, and a lot uh, lower economic value too in terms of timber value. So uh, we're seeing some of those forests transition and we're, we're in fear that we, we're going to lose a valuable forest type if we don't start incorporating more management um, to increase that diversity and support oaks into the future for what we have now and what we're, we're planning to lose. Heather, what, what did the bourbon industry play? What, what was their role in, in creating or getting behind the White Oak Initiative? I mean, aside from the wildlife, I'd say that the bourbon industry probably is the biggest stakeholder you know, within the White Oak timber use industry, I'd imagine, right? Well, I mean, they definitely have a large stake in it. Uh, it just uh, when it comes to uh, 
having access to the white oak in order to be able to have it for bourbon purposes. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot that rides on that, not only in just American bourbon, but also when it comes to uh, other countries like scotch, for example, they will use, um, all scotches are done in used barrels. And so their main source of barrels for their scotch is bourbon barrels. And so not only does it affect how uh, the bourbon industry has to look at the future, because we're having to I mean, when when we're barreling um, a bourbon right now, we're not looking at, you know, the next couple of years. We're looking at 10 years down the road because, you know, we're looking at uh, a a good bourbon. Most of them are going to be aged eight to 10 years. I mean, a younger bourbon is considered four to six years. So when when you're looking at the future of the bourbon industry, which right now they're, they have to do. I mean, when they are distilling what they're distilling today, they're having to predict what future, uh, what the future, uh, demand is demands. Yeah. Yeah. For, for bourbon itself or for whiskey itself. So when they're, when they're, when they're barreling the new distillate, they're thinking about, okay, so in 10 years time, when this comes of age, what is the industry going to be looking at? What are they going to be wanting at that point? How can we possibly meet those demands? And how much are we going to need to meet those demands? So they're looking, you know, 10, 12, sometimes 20 years into the future, if they're bottling something like a a Pappy's or, or something like that, you know, that's, that's in high demand that people want to get their hands on that is going to age out a longer way. So when we look in the bourbon industry, when we're looking at the future of bourbon, it's always a distance out. So this would, you know, this is something that would have like hit their radar pretty early on when it came to uh, what are these cooperages, meaning um, these these businesses that make barrels for the purpose of either wines or or whiskey or things like that. I mean, these cooperages are gonna are looking at okay, so what is our what what is our product? How much product are we gonna have in the future? And you've got these distilleries that are going. I'm going to need these barrels for, you know, the future. What I'm doing now, you know, in 10 years, we're going to open, but in 10 years, we're going to be looking 10 years down the road. And then 10 years from that, we're looking 10 years down the road. So they're seeing a much farther distance in the future when it comes to what their industry is going to look like. And right now they're already kind of talking about, all right, well, if white oak is no longer uh, a viable source uh, and and it's in law that you have to use white oak in order to barrel 
for bourbon, um, are we going to have to maybe change law in order to allow for other kinds of, of, of wood that we can use for that kind of thing? Uh, so having to look into the future that, I mean, I, I know that that was one of those things that lay heavy on their mind. Uh, and that's why I think they were instrumental in trying to be a part of the initiation of the the White Oak Initiative. It's the, such a generational business when you talk about, Ryan, you said 80 years for a tree for, for time of harvest. And then we've got decades uh, in some cases to age, age the good pappy. Right. I mean, that is, that is, those yeah, are just staggering numbers. Sorry. Was that right? And, and yeah, to, yeah, no, I, yeah, you're spot on Paul. And I, I think to Heather's point to elaborate more, I think, you know, that's, that's the vision and I'm a wildlife biologist uh, by trade and education and experience, but work really closely with foresters and, um, their ability to be able to look at a forest and have that vision for it and the understanding that they're they're thinking about uh, treatments and timber stand improvements and harvest in terms of how it's going to implement this forest and what it's going to look like 80 to 100, 150 years from then. Uh, so they've got to have that vision and, and think about that on a stand-to-stand basis. And it's the same thing as, as Heather mentioned in terms of these cooperages and thinking about the staves. And, and But they're thinking about it you know, more strictly from an economic standpoint. Are they going to have the supply that they need, and especially to meet these current demands? Um, in a market that's gone crazy, like, like Nick was saying. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's becoming more, more recognized right now. And folks are starting to understand that there's a concern. And I think it bodes really well when industries, um, you know, like our, our partners in the stave industry and, and bourbon companies can bring this information to light and folks can understand it from an economic impact standpoint, not only because folks enjoy drinking bourbon, but the, the revenue that's associated strictly with this and, and White Oaks used for a number of other things as well. But if you can put a dollar sign to some of those things, um, it, it tends to resonate sometimes with, with our politicians a little bit better and with the general public. And of course, you know, the importance of this message also is not mutually exclusive from the benefits that it provides wild turkeys uh, and wildlife species in general. So, yeah, it's a it's a natural fit in my mind from a partnership standpoint. Yeah, it it really is the partnership. I mean, I I I sent out this email just jokingly called it bourbon and beards. Um, but I mean, it really you know the it, they really do go, they do go hand in hand. There's so much like just mutual benefit for for wildlife, for the bourbon industry, barrel making industry. Um, you know, to really get behind. An, an initiative like this and, and, and Heather and Nick, you guys have done a lot of fundraising um, for this initiative. Talk, talk about, you know, kind of the, the grassroots support that you guys have done and, and are doing for the White Oak initiative. Well, actually this is kind of like a flagship for us when it comes to fundraising for this. So, I mean, this has been something that uh, Nick had brought to me just, you know, how do we, get more 
opportunities to, you know, bring some really good bourbon to, to our group and things like that. And talking about raffles and talking about, you know, can we auction? What can we do? And I said, you know what? I know somebody who is like killer when it comes to auctions and raffles. And so I went to my dad and I said, okay, uh, this is the idea that we have what can you tell us about, you know, how raffles work, how all of these different things work together. And, uh, I, you know, you're, you're the guru that has 26 years under your belt when it comes to fundraising, when it comes to, uh, having a way to be able to raffle things off. And he's, Steve is the one who actually said, did you know, that the NWTF is partnered with the White Oak Initiative and how that fits in. And so then he got me in touch with Ryan and with Brandon. And from there, you know, this this whole idea kind of came together. You know, part of it came from, you know, just wanting to be able to uh, provide an opportunity for people to get their hands on some really good, not so easy to get your hands on bourbon. And then also knowing that the future of bourbon is uh, really kind of hinging on this specific subject. Uh, we knew that we wanted to get involved in more ways than just, okay, so let's go to this next distillery, let's pick this next barrel, let's let's bring, you know, this to the group and things like that. We wanted to participate and be involved with a way that we can help the future of bourbon itself and for future generations. I mean, it it, it really is a kind of like a generational thing when it when you when you think about spirits and when you think about liquor, uh, you know, you've got a whole lot of options out there, but when it comes to whiskey and bourbon, you find people that just have this bit of community that have uh, a generational connection when it comes to being able to talk about different whiskeys that that connects people in ways that you wouldn't necessarily think that you could find connections. So being able to just like with, um, with turkey hunting and trying to pass down this heritage, like the, the R3 program, you know, trying to retain and um, recruit and things like that. We're trying to provide uh, this, this community, this legacy, this, this American history that we can bring to the next generation and the generation after that. And, and if, if we are only thinking about what we can do now, then, you know, we're not, we're not being responsible when it comes to the future. And uh, not only for just, you know, pr protecting what, uh, you know, whiskey and bourbon do uh, to America and how it shaped history, but then also just um, being able to also reach outside of that industry and 
and recognize that not only is this really important for whiskey and bourbon, but it's it's very important for for habitat, for even even the furniture industry. You've got all of these different aspects that go into the white oak and how it affects so many different avenues and different, uh, you know, with with um, different species and and all of those things. Being able to take part in that kind of conservation uh, on a much broader scale. Um, I mean, that those are the kind of things that I get excited about. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of built in me, you know, the conservation of things and and uh, the fundraising and the the bringing light to people of you know on subjects that they wouldn't necessarily even know existed unless you bring it to their attention. And so being able to kind of have this be like a, a flagship for us of this is where it all got started and seeing where it can lead and maybe hopefully open a lot of doors and opportunity for for uh, you know fundraising when it comes to tapping into the bourbon world and the bourbon community so yeah, yeah and and that's that's the the correlations that you have the shared values. I mean, we talk about the community, uh, that both hunting and, and, and people that, you know, the bourbon drinkers, hardcore bourbon drinkers, that is, that is really neat. And I, that, that is exciting to, to hear how, you know, how closely, uh, you know, related match those are, uh, Brandon, uh, if, if someone wants to get involved and, and, and help support this cause for the bourbon industry, for the wild Turkey, for the white Oak initiative, how, how can someone, help raise money and, and participate in, in this program. That's something we've kind of been trying to put together. Um, I've never personally done anything with bourbon or alcohol specific. So that's one thing we're talking about is what can be done, you know, not cross any lines there. And then with the laws in Michigan for doing online versus in person, um, so we're trying to get through those hurdles to figure out and put something together that uh, brings awareness to this issue. And then we can also turn into a fundraising um, aspect of it as well. So I guess at this point, I don't have a direct answer, um, but it's something that, that you know we've been in contact with and working with and, and trying to figure out what we can do and what's going to be the most beneficial. Um, and I'll, I'll be the first to tell you that it throws me a little bit out of my loop, which I, which I like, you know, it's, I'm used to guns and, you know, prints, calls, you name it, you know? Yeah. So I'm kind of excited for this. It gets me out of my shell a little bit different from what I'm used to and excited about it. Very, very good. Now, Ryan, talk about the, the raffle stuff that you just sent me that I bought a hundred dollars blindly. And you said, you need to buy these. How many? Do you, he didn't give me an option. It was literally, he sent me this raffle. It says, how many do you want? <laughs> so um, yeah, that, that's kind of on a, uh, it's a side raffle through a local chapter to raise some money for some community supporters of the Turkey Federation that had some uh, unex, unex, 
unexplained, uh, unplanned um, you know, medical circumstances that had come up. So we're uh, the local chapter wanted to band together and do something to give back to the community. Um, so I had an opportunity um, to work with them and donate a few bottles of, of allocated bourbon that I had in my collection, um, knowing that it's going to be better suited if somebody else wins it we can generate some money and give back to local community so it's pretty cool um you know there's there's some latitude there um you know we, we focus really hard I, myself as a volunteer and also as a staff member in our chapters across the country to generate money be good stewards of those funds and 90 cents on every dollar going back directly towards the mission uh, but you know our chapter system and how it's structured we have a lot of latitude um you know, for, for opportunities for our volunteers to contribute and give back to their communities and doing it through NWTF outreach events or mentored hunts or uh, through conducting some side raffles to support some community events. And, and this was an example of that. But, you know, in, in Michigan here specifically, um, and some of the ideas and the framework that Heather and Nick and I and, and Brandon had talked about is, you know, since about 2014, we've averaged about a million dollars worth of conservation work in Michigan alone. Um, and six years ago, we were leveraging our, our investment, NWTF raised dollars at a 54 to one match. So for every 50, every dollar we'd bring in, we'd match it with 54 additional dollars. We've since, you know, that's, that was a, a bit of an anomaly on the high side, but um, we're, we're now still close to around a 20 to one match, 18 to one match. So for, for every $20 that uh um that we bring in we're going to multiply that by by another 20 so um it's it's really exciting um and it gives us an opportunity to continue to do some good conservation work and um you know working with heather and nick here to uh, explore some opportunities to generate some revenue and really reach out to a different demographic of folks that maybe wouldn't have um, otherwise been in the fold with our, our NWTF event system, our fundraising events. And, and for us as an organization, we get to broaden out and make Brandon a little uncomfortable here for a bit as we're finding <laughs> some new ways to uh, to explore, to generate some money for, for conservation um, with bourbon in mind. So, I mean, it's, it's a win-win. I'll give you an example. I pulled one of these out. Um, we've got a partnership with... Uh, you see, I can't get it in the, the glare. There we go. Um, had a, some custom turkey calls made by David Holleran. Um, oh, wow. To, uh, to support the, the White Oak Initiative. He signed it, engraved it on the back, and then has the, the White Oak Initiative logo there um, on it. And oh, so cool. we've been using some of these custom calls on giveaways, doing on-the-ground landowner conservation events. And so uh, still have a few of those left and some giveaways, some hats and things like that that we can incorporate in some of these future um, events in partnership with with Nick and Heather and the Southwest Michigan Bourbon Hunters moving forward. So, yeah, yeah, good. A lot, good of, deal. lot of really cool things. There are. Yeah. And it's it's all I mean, it's just such a good cause. And it's 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 amazing, you know, the correlation that's there between the, you know, the two, you know, just the two, I guess, factions of, of people that that love two vastly different things bourbon and turkeys like you just never would have put them together uh except for wild turkey bourbon i guess but just how how much they rely on on a, on a tree is is really neat and it's great that uh you know people that have just a laser focus to, to taking care of that resource so um heather nick tell well, us go ahead i was gonna 
say, I mean, they're not that exclusive and I can, I can full well blame my, my previous supervisor and some of the regional directors that I work with and have worked with for now my enthusiasm for bourbon. So, um, they're, uh, they may be more closely tied than what we recognize. Very, very good. Very good. Heather, tell us, uh, tell the listeners where they can find your bourbon, bourbon hunter Facebook group or website, wherever uh, you guys like to gather. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, all you have to do is just search Southwest Michigan Bourbon Hunters and the the group should pop up and you'd have to join. All you have to do is just, you know, answer a few questions and prove that you are human and then we're going to let you in. Uh, part of the thing that that we do well is uh, getting, because I mean, on a regular basis, we go to a distillery we pick a barrel that is going to be sold just directly to our group and our group only Uh, we work with a local liquor store that uh, has that liquor license that has us that gives us the ability to be able to purchase that so online is where we do all of our business so we set up um uh, ways for people to be able to get their hands on this and it's and it's pretty much all advertised online so that's kind of where we are you know that where we kind of shine when it comes to getting things in front of people through that social media outlet so uh, when we're going out there talking about like bringing in these bottles that we can use to fundraise Uh, we're looking at ways that we can raffle those online. And so that's our main focus right now. Um, We're, we're kicking around a few dates on what we can settle on, seeing if we can do some in-person ones and what we might be able to look for in that. But uh, we're, we're kind of, we're getting really close to that precipice of being able to just launch. And so we're really excited about it. And uh, we're looking at, if, if, if we can have everything kind of come together, possibly maybe doing some stuff in August, uh, we've got an in-person event happening in August. And so we're looking at that as an option. And then we're just also looking at online op- opportunities as well. So, but yeah, Southwest Michigan Bourbon Hunters, that's where you can find us. Uh, you can mention that you heard us through the podcast. That's probably going to be the quickest in- indication that you're a real human and we're going to let you in. So um, so when it says, what's your favorite Southern Michigan uh, city? You can just say, hey, I heard you on that podcast. And so that'll, that'll be an, an immediate approval. So... <laughs> yeah that's Um, that's a funny question what's your favorite southern it sure is in ann arbor i will say that (laughs) all right that's a good point that is on facebook (laughs) okay that's good that's good stuff well well thank you so much uh everyone for your for your time uh this is a great if 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 you want to if you want more information about the white oak initiative i think it's just like you just you can google white oak initiative that's what i did it's white oak org. so check that out uh thanks for everyone's time great talk
Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. Bass Pro Shops and the National Wild Turkey Federation stand together to help make a difference for the wildlife and scenic lands that enrich our hunting lifestyle. Since 1973, we have positively impacted more than 22 million acres and invested more than $9 million into wild turkey research, an effort supported by Bass Pro Shops. The restoration of the wild turkey is one of America's greatest conservation success stories, but the work is far from over. Through the continued contributions of partners like Johnny Morris and Bass Pro Shops, the NWTF mission is a movement that is delivering the right conservation work at the right place and at the right scale. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. <laughs> 